Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. One very enjoyable way to learn history is through reading historical fiction. And today's Spirit in Action guests have presented us with just such a gift through their co-authored book, The Thread Collectors. The story is all the more compelling because of the family connections of the authors themselves to the events of this story, set during the Civil War, much of it in Louisiana, and centering around two couples, one couple of enslaved African Americans and the other couple white and Jewish. Shauna Edwards is African-American and grew up in Louisiana, worked as a lawyer with this being her first published book. This is the 10th book by her Jewish co-author, Allison Richmond, and together Allison and Shauna explore the universally recognizable issues around racism, slavery, discrimination, war, and family, bringing out ignored and neglected history. Shauna J. Edwards and Allison Richmond join us today via Zoom from New York City. Shauna, thanks so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. And Allison, you too. Great to have you here. Thank you so much for having us, Mark. And I understand that you live not too far from one another. That's right. Right now, I am sitting in Harlem in New York City. And I'm on the Upper West Side, so there's about 40 blocks between us. Well, the two of you together have created this book called The Thread Collectors. I noticed, Shauna, that in the dedication, you said, for my original Stella and my future Wade. So is Allison your original Stella or is there someone else? Well, Allison is wonderful, but she is not. Our book is focused on two couples that meet. One is a Black enslaved couple and one is a Jewish couple. This is in the height of the Civil War. Some of the action takes place down in New Orleans, where I'm originally from. But the Black heroine, Stella, who is engaged in something very interesting, she's actually creating embroidered maps to help enslaved men run away and join the Union Army. She was named after my mother. My mother's name is Stella, and my mother was named after one of her female ancestors. So when I say for my original Stella, it is for my Northlight, my mother. And as for my future Wade, I don't want to give away too much of the bookmark, but um, a character introduces themselves whose name is Wade, and I will leave it at that. Well, we're going to learn more about Wade as we go on. Allison, you've written a number of books. What led you to this book? This book had been in pieces in my mind for several years, but it, you know, we can talk about it maybe a little later, but how it came to the actual coming together with Shauna wouldn't arise for several years later. Having been a historical fiction novelist for almost my entire adult life, I realized that books are parts, you know, they build in your mind over the course of many years often. Sometimes someone tells you something you find is interesting. Sometimes it's something in your own family history that you want to explore, but you start creating building blocks for that story. And really, The time you sit down to write it is when the wind is at your back and everything is telling you that now it's time to harness all those ideas and to write the book. But the original idea before I came together with Shona started with two different things in my mind. One was that in my family tree, I had two great, great, great uncles, both Jewish, who came to America in the 1850s from Germany. 
when the Civil War broke out, one brother had already gone down to Mississippi to start a mercantile depot and probably to protect his economic investments, you know, joined up with the Confederacy Army while his younger brother up north enlisted as a musician. And so growing up from my grandmother, I always heard that we had Southern roots, but that we had nothing to do with that part of the family, that the division occurred during the Civil War, and that permanently broke up the family forever. So I always thought that would be an interesting relationship to mine in a historical novel about what happens when two brothers, both immigrants to the United States, both outsiders being Jewish, at that time, only half of a percent of the entire United States population was Jewish. So you're talking about just a few tens of thousands of people. I just thought that would be a really interesting thing to explore. And then I would say in 2017, I had seen the PBS documentary by Rick Burns, Ken Burns's younger brother, called Death in the Civil War. And I was struck by two things that I hadn't read in history books before, which was that 180,000 Black men enlisted in the army to fight for freedom on the Union side, that instead of being given muskets to fight, they were given pickaxes and hoes and forced to do manual labor, digging trenches, and in most cases also burying or fallen white soldiers. The dead had to be buried so quickly because then they had to progress to the next battlefield. And sometimes maps were created on pieces of scraps of pieces of paper, documents that were made by friends who felt that they wanted to somehow document where their fellow Conrads had been buried, hoping that at some point after the war, the body could be reclaimed and brought up for proper burial up north. And so Shauna and I, you know, I started talking to her about this idea for a possible book, you know, perhaps the white soldier was Jewish and had a brother back home in the South. And there's an unexpected friendship between a black soldier and a Jewish soldier. And perhaps the black soldier creates this map. And Shauna's eyes just sort of lit up and she started contributing to like that narrative. I'm going to pass it on to her and tell her then what happened. The first thing you should understand, Mark, is that Allison and I have been friends for over a decade, maybe like 13 years or so. And while she has made her living as a writer, I have made my living as a failed writer, also known as a lawyer. <laughs> so every time that Allison would tell me about a story idea, my mind would start turning over. You know, I studied literature in college at Harvard, and just to have the privilege of speaking to a working writer was always a thrill. So when Allison told me about this idea, a number of things raced through my mind. The first is that I was immediately intrigued by the Black soldier, right? I wanted to know what his story would be, thinking about someone who has escaped from enslavement, and rather than just running and trying to find some place to hide, sacrifices themselves and has the amount of faith and courage to join up for the Union Army, particularly given the death toll being so high, I also knew from a practical standpoint, while there were many free Black people that fought in the Union Army, if this character was enslaved, he wouldn't have been able to read or write. So what type of map is he making and how is it going to survive the war? So then I said, well, what if he gives this map, this rudimentary map to his beloved and she takes something and she embroiders a more permanent map? And we can talk a little bit later on about how quilting and threads and repurposing of cloth has been important in, in my family and certainly in the Black culture. But this was in 2017. You know, we're just having a conversation and we are, as friends do, exchanging ideas. 
We didn't write this book in 2017, though. It wasn't until 2020 when the world was grappling not only with the isolation of the pandemic, but here in America and then subsequently beyond, we're grappling with the calls for increased social justice, racial justice, and we are dealing with the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. Obviously, Allison and I, we have had some conversations about race before, being a Black woman and being a white Jewish woman and just that sense of outsidership. But this was a different level of conversation, I think, that the entire nation was having. And Allison, and I, I give her all credit for her bravery because it would have been easier to hide in that moment. She picked up the phone and she called me and she said, I think now is the time to write this book, the Civil War book we spoke about three years ago. And more importantly, would you like to write that book with me? And that is how Thread Collectors, what you know, we've been terming our legacy project, that is how it started in earnest. So Shauna, you described yourself as a failed writer and <laughs> working as a lawyer, right? Does the success of this book mean that you're going to be shifting jobs? That's a great question, but I have already stopped practicing law. I practiced for about 14 years. I now work in HR at a law firm, but this certainly meant that I was burning the candle at both ends. I don't have any current plans to leave my day job, as it were, but I do think that writing now that it has become a part of my life will always remain a part of my life. I especially appreciate it after I finished the book, I got to the after notes at the end, which filled me in with a little bit of your genetic background, your relationship to various people and the whole story there. Would you care to mention a little bit more since, I mean, you actually are from New Orleans. So half of this or, or most of this is actually set in Louisiana, at least, and in New Orleans a lot of the time. Tell about that connection. So I am a proud daughter of Louisiana, and my family has been on the border of Louisiana and Texas as far back as we can trace. One of the things that Allison and I have been talking about quite a bit is the lack of records and Black families and Black histories. And so that is something that I've grappled with when trying to trace back my ancestry. There are lots of parts of this book that definitely are inspired by my family, or their direct connections to how I grew up in New Orleans and was privileged enough to continue to go home, see my mother for research trips and write it off. I can't think of a better outcome than that. All of the women in the book, all of the Black women are named after female ancestors. So Stella, our main heroine, her sister, Amine, who is, she's fully Black and Stella is biracial. She's half Black, half white. And then their mother, Janie. Janie's actually inspired by my great, great, great aunt, Janie, who was a woman who managed to find financial independence as a Black woman. She became a lender to her family. She became a landowner. I grew up hearing some stories, limited, though, from my mother, the original Stella, about Janie. So we definitely wanted to put that in the book. And then some of the plot aspects of it are definitely rooted in either things that I had seen growing up or things that I experienced. So I mentioned at the outset of our conversation, Mark, that Stella is a gifted embroiderist, right? She is actually using those skills to do what she can to support the war effort. She's making maps for enslaved men to run and join the Union Army. In my family, which on my mother's side, we weren't of huge material means, but they would repurpose cloth, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, and they would make these gorgeous quilts. You know, you take a dress that has seen better days 
and you repurpose it into something that's loving and decorative and worthy of art. You know, I have a remnant of a quote in my home. It's got my great grandmother's field dress and my grandmother's church dress. She was Baptist, even though I grew up as Catholic. That was really important to us to weave into the book. And then there are aspects just about New Orleans life that I'm just really close to, right? Like that odd mix of licentiousness in a way, and also faith. We have this church in the book that a lot of some of the clandestine activity, I will say, takes place there because Amine volunteers at the church. Even though she's a slave, she's still taking her free time limited as it is, and she's going because this is a place of refuge for her. And growing up, I think Black in the South and particularly Black in New Orleans, there was that odd tension, right? You have your faith, but then you also have your Mardi Gras. And we wanted to have all of that in the book. And if someone walks away thinking that they might want to visit New Orleans or New Orleans as a study in contrast, then I think as a proud New Orleanian, I've done my job. When did you move north? Oh, like for everybody, I moved for an education. I first moved for college and then I went to law school up north and started work. I briefly moved back to New Orleans in 2016 and then briefly moved back again in 2018. My mother's there. My brother is now there. My sister's there. My other sister plans to retire there. So that's the center of gravity for me. The book, The Thread Collectors by Shauna Edwards and Allison Richmond, it's really, I think, both about the Civil War, but about racism. It's really about the attitudes that are at the root of where we got to today. And you said that really the, the time to launch this book came, uh, you know, in 2020. Black Lives Matter, George Floyd's death, uprising, that a significant conscious raising was going on at that point. How much has dealing with racism been part of your histories, both you, Allison, and Shauna? For me, I grew up on Long Island in a very small town that's probably about an hour and a half east of New York City. Growing up, I went to a Presbyterian nursery school because there were no Jewish nursery schools or places of education there. And I, for the most part of my childhood, was the only Jewish person in any of my classes, which I think taught me to be strong and to be able to say what my identity was from an early on. I was taught to always acknowledge that I was different and that my faith was different. But that's not to say that I didn't encounter racism growing up. I mean, I have, I don't know if I want to go into every incident I experienced as a child, but there certainly were over a handful. And I think one of the things that Sean and I wanted to do with creating the Thread Collectors was to write a historical novel that, yes, takes place during the Civil War, but we're using two unique lenses who are for the most part, considered outsiders in the battleground, right? Who are fighting for freedom and, you know, all the integrity of what the Union Army was supposed to embody. Of course, in our book, we show that there was a tremendous amount of racism within the Union Army as well and up north as well. But we wanted to show how the history is experienced by all different types of people of faith, of color, and how there's many times a lot of disadvantage to that. And hopefully our lenses are unique in the way we tell this story and that it builds empathy with our readers who are not, you know, from similar background as we are. And Shauna, what's your background with respect to, I don't know, work for equality against racism? I mean, you're a lawyer. What kind of lawyer were you? I was a corporate lawyer. However, having grown up in my household, I grew up as very race conscious, but also as very socially oriented. My mother is a doctor. She was in a class that integrated her medical school up in Lubbock, Texas at Texas Tech. 
my father was also professional as well. So, you know, they grew up and came of age in the 60s in, you know, the deep south. My father is originally from Galveston, where Juneteenth actually was created. My father was far lighter. He's no longer with us. He's passed. And my mother, who thankfully is still with us. And even the tensions between that one set of their relationship and colorism and why would a light man marry a dark woman? Like I grew up hearing all of this, not in a way to make me fearful of the United States or fearful of the world, but just more conscious of some of the challenges that I would have as I moved through it. I will say as much as I understood that racism existed, and obviously I grew up in the South, Most of my more harrowing experiences were in the North. When I moved to the Northeast as a 17-year-old to go to college, because I think that I had had a false view that race didn't matter above the Mason-Dixon line, whereas we know it does and that it may show up differently. There may also be embedded issues of class. But we are a country in which race is a profound question. That was a driver of some of the editorial decisions that Allison and I made. We wanted to show that even though you have these bodies or these regions that you think of as all good, like the Union Army or being in New York City, that it's not that simple, right? There is a lot of gray. One of the incidents that we detail in the book is the burning of the Colored Children's Asylum in New York City. And at the time, during the Civil War, there was this beautiful Italianate mansion that had been built by philanthropists for Black orphans. And many of them, their fathers were all fighting for the Union Army. During the draft riots, which took place in 1863, which some people are familiar with, uh, there was such an outpouring of rage by really working class white people in the North that they were being sent off to fight a war for Black people who they thought were in direct economic competition with them, a mob of thousands of grown white people surrounded this orphanage and tried to burn 220 Black children alive in their beds. They all escaped, and they escaped with the most beautiful Bible that is actually held at the New York Historical Society now. But there are stories like that that are not taught to us in school that allow us to be, I think, too reductive when it comes to issues of race in the country. One piece that I read somewhere along the way about what happened in New York City with the Colored Children's Asylum, I mean, this was not just the asylum that was targeted. There was, it was a whole big race riot, whites race riot. I understand that part of what fired it up was blacks were not allowed to serve in the military, that the draft was only for white people at that point. And I think that's to some degree because the whites were afraid to put guns in the hands of blacks. I think it was because of that. But I also think when Blacks weren't yet getting the full rights of citizenship, so they weren't at the top of the list that have to defend the rights of citizenship. The other thing that sparked the draft riots was it was a class-based riot as well. If you were wealthy, you could pay $300 to get out of the draft. So it really was focused on lower income white men. And when you think of the same issues that we sometimes encounter today, when you think about the idea of liberating hundreds of thousands of black people who are then going to work, they're going to be an economic competition as well. So you want me to go to fight a war where I may die because the death toll was so high to liberate a people who may take my job. I'm not saying that that's correct thinking, but you start to understand the cycle of that thinking and why it sparked so much rage. 
And Allison, I haven't heard about your previous books. Yeah, there are, I think, six books or so that you've written. This one, in addition to being an historical novel and really giving us valuable glimpses into around the Civil War time, it's also a romance of sorts. What led you to put the romance things in there as primary? Well, I wouldn't even say romance. I think there's love in this book and there's all different shades of love. There's the love, obviously, between the two couples, uh, Stella and William and Jacob and Lily. But there's also the love between the two men and the, and the way their friendship is formed and their bonding of music. I think when you write historical fiction, one of the things that you need to always do is to show the reader that even though, you know, you're stepping into a historical backdrop where things, you know, could have happened over a hundred years ago, there's so much that is still relevant today, the need to protect our children, the wanting to love the person who your heart is connected to, wanting good to triumph over evil. These universal things have been happening for centuries. And so love is one of those things. Grief is one of those things. You know, Familial relationships, the, the need to want to protect our children. These are all things that I think are very important. So I hesitate over the word romance because I don't think this book or any of my books are typical in the sense that they're, you know, bodice rip or it's all about the passion between two people. It's the different layers of love. And I think the lengths they go to, particularly our Black characters, Stella and William, who in the time of enslavement were not allowed to marry. I think that's going to be something new to readers that they don't remember from history books, that slaves were not allowed to marry. They were not allowed to read. They were not allowed to write. So they were denied an education. All those basic rights that we think of as freedoms of Americans, they were denied. So love even becomes this even more more this quest to experience life fully and to be free to experience that. So all my books have love in them because I think love is what unites us. It's you know one of the most powerful threads that bind us together, but it's not so one-dimensional in the sense that it's just the passion and the romantic love. Let's put it that way. Well, I think in both cases, in both of these couples, most of the action takes place when they're separated. So it's not just she starts breathing heavy, he starts panting. It's <laughs> no. it's not that kind of silly romance or not, you not necessarily feel, silly. You can feel the love that they have each, for each other by the lengths they do to somehow stay connected and to keep hope alive. I think there's so much faith that the characters have in the sense that they are separated. They are in danger. Even the women, you know, particularly Stella, is in danger, being someone who's risking everything to create these embroidered maps. And obviously, the men on the battlefield are in incredible danger. And even Lily in New York, although her danger is not as great, she is speaking very outwardly against slavery and her circle of being abolitionist. There were a lot of people who you know, didn't want to hear what she had to say. So everyone is taking a risk of some sort. Well, and she's also a suffragette, right? So working for women's rights and for the rights of other non-white people. And being an outsider herself, being Jewish and being a woman, you know, she's definitely, you know, not mainstream in any way. <laughs> well, one of the things that I found was an interesting complexity to this is Stella and William are both enslaved, I think, to the same person. Stella is essentially a kept woman in this respect because she's a lighter black. And I guess Amine, her sister, being darker, didn't have the same privilege. So she's a kept woman of sorts. And there's this man who visits while he's in the military every six weeks or something, he visits her. So when she becomes pregnant, there's this big fear because there's been two men that she's been with. If the person who has enslaved her finds out it's by him, 
is that good news or bad news? Or if she finds out by someone else, is that good? That really twisted my mind around. Yeah, it was, um, I'm not going to go too much into the story because we don't want to give spoilers away, but that was a crucial point for us in the development of Stella. And I think it gives her another layer of something to fight for. You know, Allison talked about risking it all. She talked about the universal emotion of wanting to protect your child. Something that we do not talk a lot about is the fact that if you are an enslaved parent during that time, you had no ability to protect your child, right? They could be taken from you at any given time. There was a total loss of Black childhood because the average Black child would be put out into the fields if they were an agricultural slave at five or six years old. Think about the average five or six-year-old you know and think about them working a full day upon pain of physical punishment if they don't meet the quota. So this is a real quandary for Stella. It's a time when you think that motherhood should be wonderful, and yet it's a time for her where it's very fraught because... It could be incredibly dangerous for her and her unborn child. The other thing that, it, and I do want to say that this is a closed door book and that Allison and I were both very clear that as much as Stella's being held in sexual slavery, we did not want to show scenes of violation. So all of these things are closed door and it's, it's up to the reader to understand and imagine what she is going through. But the the other thing that we don't speak a lot about is that there was an incredible amount of violation of enslaved Black women, and it was often for economic gain. You know, there are not too many assets that will just reproduce themselves, and slavery was very much that way. You know, if your slave has a child and is immediately born into bondage, you have just almost doubled your wealth. And I don't think that we can run away from that. There is a quote, might be by Harriet Tubman, and forgive me for the paraphrasing, but it is that Black women are the greatest creators of wealth that the American nation has ever seen because they just produced wealth from their body. We have to grapple with that. Folks, you're listening to Spirit in Action today. We have two guests here. They're co-authors of The Thread Collectors, which is a historical novel set at the time of the Civil War. We have Allison Richmond here, joining us from New York City, and Shauna J. Edwards, also joining us from New York City. Although she's originally from New Orleans, and there's some stuff I have to research with you about New Orleans to continue on this. But this is Spirit in Action. Our website is Northern Spirit radio.org on that site. We've got 17 years of our programs, interviews with people for spirit in action, people who are trying to do world healing work. And I think that this novel definitely constitutes world healing work. Also on our site, I've got links to all the other guests, and there's a lot of them. If you consider 50 a year for 17 years, there's a lot. And there's links to, for instance, if you want to get a copy of the book, the threadcollectors.com is the website you should go to. AllisonRichmond.com is another link I'll have on the site because Allison has written a number of other books, and I think you want to track them down after you read The Thread Collectors. Also, there's a place where you can comment on this program. We love your feedback because we love two-way communication. It's not just about me or even my guest talking. Your voice is important in this as well. There's a place also to support us. Click on support down below there. You can donate. And please remember to support the local community radio stations that are listening to. There's 
some 45 stations nationwide carrying our programs. They operate often by pennies. So every dollar you give and every moment you spend helping them is extremely important. So please support your local community radio station and get out news and music you just won't get anywhere else. Again, threadcollectors.com is the website. And I wanted to ask you again, Shauna, about New Orleans, because my understanding is that New Orleans was a special place in the South because of its French history. I understand that the French outlawed slave trade earlier than other countries. They had different norms with respect to enslavement. So what is that difference in history from the rest of the South that you know of? That's really astute, and that's actually true. But obviously, once the Americans purchased the Louisiana in 1803, then New Orleans became more akin to how the rest of the United States was treating enslaved people. But some of the cultural vestiges remained. The French had a code they called the Code Noir, And it actually prescribed the rights of different gradations of Black people. So there were enslaved Blacks might have some rights. Free Black people of color would have more. If you were, at the time, the term was mulatto, so biracial, then you would even have more rights. And so it reflected not the Black and white one-drop rule that America had about race. Some of the ways that the cultural influences still remained at the time of our book, The Thread Collectors, is that enslaved people in New Orleans might have more freedom to socialize, right? They were living in an urban environment. And in particular, there's a place called Congo Square. I think under the French, it was called the Place de Congo. And there on Sundays, which was a traditional day of rest for enslaved people and others, you could go and you could hear different types of music. And you would have Native American people that had come to trade, enslaved Black people who might have been allowed to sell some of their wares. You would have adventurous white people who wanted to go out and hear some great music. I mean, think of it as like a really early jazz club. And it's at the square that a whole bunch of different cultures are mixing and rubbing elbows and trading cultural influences. And because of that, we knew that we wanted to have Congo Square play a small role in our book. It is where our two Black couple uh, who are in love, William and Stella, it's where they sneak away sometimes and are allowed to meet because it would have been a place where they could have come across each other. So it was a market as well. It was a market. The French market is very near. Basically, if you go far enough, it leads into Congo Square. But now Congo Square is in what is called Louis B. Armstrong Park. Actually, I I associate the market with all kinds of socializing because in my village in Togo, West Africa, when I was Peace Corps, I mean, you always went to a town and you always went to the Marche to find out what was going on. And that's where you meet everybody. That's where you connect with everything. So Absolutely. So there's a phrase that you use in there, and I, I had heard it before, but I had never quite figured out what it was. When I had heard the word quadroon before, I'd always thought, well, like platoon, maybe it's some kind of a status. And then I say, wait, quad, fourth. Is that someone who is one fourth 
black. Is that right? It is someone who is one fourth black. And then we don't use these words anymore, of course, but Octoroon is someone who is one eighth black. And so you think about the level of gradations of blackness where someone would come up with the word for someone who is one eighth black, right? That person is not white. They're not fully black. They are an Octoroon. But I understand also that at least at one point you were legally defined as black if you were one thirty second black. So you got up to Octoroon what do you do for a 30 second? What's the phrase? There, I don't know the phrase off the top of my head, but there is a phrase, unfortunately, I will say for someone who is 116th and 132nd. But at, when under the American rule, one drop makes you black. So New Orleans is the setting for this. And so there's a little bit different flavor than much of the rest of the South. And still the horrible, I mean, so many people being enslaved, children sold away from their parents and mistreated and that incapacity to do anything. And the fact that William and Stella can't be married as long as they're enslaved. The other thing that was struck me about the book, and it's just my lack of knowledge of history about Civil War, is the book starts in 63, and there's already Union troops in Mississippi. And I didn't think that the Union had gone that far south. I thought they were still fighting in Kentucky and other places up north. What was the progress? Well, I think the only part that we go down to where there's been fighting in Mississippi is towards the end, when which we don't want to give away the plot with Lily's journey and the, the rails being sort of blown to pieces and how that affects her journey. Most of our battle scenes are not, we focus on Port Hudson, which I think Shauna actually would be the best person to talk about the research for Port Hudson because she actually went there and walked in the footsteps of the Black soldiers who fought there. So Shauna, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, I'm happy to. But the one thing I want to say, Mark, is it wasn't like a curtain where the Union Army went all the way down and kind of like it was the sea of red. New Orleans was captured fairly early. And you might want to confirm this, but I think in 1862, because it was such an important port. So they made sure to capture some port cities. They needed to, because if not, you know, the first few years of the Civil War, I don't want to call it a toss up, but a Union victory was not guaranteed. The battle that we feature in our book, Port Hudson, which takes place about an hour and a half outside of New Orleans, it was a seminal battle in that the Union Army needed that battle to go their way to like maintain control over the Mississippi Delta, right, to be able to transport goods by ship and then maintain their supply lines. And what happened was they finally allowed Black soldiers to fight. We usually think of the movie Glory, which is a fabulous movie in the Massachusetts 54th Regiment. That must be the first time Black soldiers were ever given muskets and rifles. It was not. Um, Port Hudson happened earlier. I don't know that it was the first battle, but it did happen before the battle depicted in Glory. But what made it very tragic was that hundreds of Black men were allowed to fight, but they were essentially led into a shooting gallery because the Union officers did not do the appropriate types of reconnaissance. The Union Army had more men, the Confederate Army held the high ground, and they just shot down. Hundreds of Black men died, and their bodies laid there for weeks. And then ultimately, when the bodies needed to be buried, it was the Black soldiers that were sent in to bury the decomposing bodies of their compatriots. The Union Army won that battle, but they won it by a siege. 
essentially. And so the Union, like the Civil War had all of these different types of battles. You know, some of them were sieges, some of them were hit and runs. We started to see more guerrilla warfare. It was organized chaos. I will say that. That's why so many people died, 600,000 people. It was organized chaos. So you you would have really important cities that would flip back and forth all of the time. And even when someone did hold the ground, like, you know, you have the Union Army occupying New Orleans during our book, which is historical fact, you still had plenty of saboteurs, you know, like it is a traditional civil war. Everyone looks the same. Who is on your side? You don't know. And I think that is reflective of the chaos of the Civil War. The use of blacks as cannon fodder at Port Hudson is really an upsetting thing to watch and to observe. And I don't know, does it go down in history? Is it observed elsewhere? Or is the thread collectors the place where people are most likely going to encounter the facts of the situation? Well, I think one of the things that Shauna and I realized early on in the research of this book is that there were going to be things that as we were reading that we had never been aware of before. Both of us were not aware of Port Hudson. Both of us were not aware of the burning of the children's colored asylum in New York. And we sort of made this bond between each other where if we both were unaware of it, we knew it was something that we wanted to share with our readers that it would, you know, the book would become this palimpsest of history that many people, you know, have not learned in the classroom or in their own personal readings. Of course, we didn't want the book to become didactic, like it's a textbook. I think what makes this historical fiction successful is if you're rooting for the characters, walking in their footsteps, feeling their emotions, but history comes alive for you. And so when you finish the last page, you have learned almost through osmosis. And that's what we wanted to do. You know, when you're seeing Jacob and William bonding after the aftermath of Port Hudson and hearing, I mean, again, we don't want to give away too much plot, but hearing these emotional conversations between these two men it breaks your heart. It's gutting. And that way you don't ever forget Port Hudson. You learn about the Lieutenant Caillou who led the black troops to their death and what it was like for those who survived to know that their brethren were there for several weeks, you know, with their bodies rotting in the sun, you know, so, but you emotionally feel it through emotion, the history comes alive. There's the friendship. The The book is called The Thread Collectors, but I think it also could have been The Tune Collectors because of Jacob and William's friendship is so deeply ensconced in the music that both of them do. There's a song, Girl of Fire, and I'm just wondering if that's your song, Allison, or is it <laughs> someone else's? Well, that is the only song in the book that is invented. All the music that we specify in the book where they're creating it in riffs together on the battlefield or Lily sending sheet music down south for Jacob and he's sharing that with William. Those are all Civil War songs that were in play during that time. But Girl of Fire was something that was, you know, from Shauna and my imagination, but, you know, it's essential to part of the plot, how that song basically does build connective tissue between certain characters. But there's, I guess, also the name, the Girl of Fire. Our two female heroines, they have a lot of spunk, they have a lot of courage, and they have a lot of fire in their belly. So I think that's where the title came from. I want to mention one of my experiences I think it was Shauna, you mentioned this, that racism in the North, there was this kind of presumption, you know, the North were the good people who love blacks or were tolerant in the South were the evil people. I lived in Milwaukee for eight years after I got back from the Peace Corps. I was teaching physics at one point at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. 
I was teaching a class. Uh, it's a, a low-level, shall we say, physics class I was teaching. And I gave them a test, and a lot of people were stumped because they had believed this course was a blow-off course. And it was not difficult to get a passing grade, but a lot of them didn't quite understand grading as it was. But I was in my office, and in comes a student from the class who was black, and he was a football player. He's a lot bigger than I was. And he came in, and he was angry. He looked me in the eye, and he said, you wrote that test to get me. He really thought it was about him. Well, he and I became friends. He found that wasn't the case, and I did extra help work with him to help him do better. But his experience, what he told me was that having been raised in Alabama, having moved up to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, he said the racism was much worse in Milwaukee. He'd never felt racism so badly because in part, it's how people look at you. Whereas in the South, they might say something that's not hidden behind the back. That in fact, the place that it's done through underhanded means in the North made it even worse. It made him feel extremely unsafe and he couldn't wait to graduate so he could get out of there. Do you have any such comparison North and South now, especially Shauna? So I don't want to compare gradations of racism because it is all awful, but I will say that it can be particularly insidious and frankly detrimental to your sense of self to not know if what you're experiencing is real. You know, we've all heard the term gaslighting, and I think some people, people who are outsiders, they often feel like if it's not overt, are you allowed to complain about it? Are you allowed to sense it? Is it actually happening? And I think that is when it can become truly, truly destructive. I mean, my mother always told me she grew up, you know, she was born and she's a Southern woman. She's not going to let me tell you when she was born, uh, but she was born in a cotton town that you've never heard of called uh, Hostin, Louisiana. She would tell me that you just knew where to go. You know, you knew who your people were. That did not mean that you were not potentially unsafe, but there was an era of certainty. And that does not exist sometimes, particularly when people are going to be less than transparent about how they feel. Back to New Orleans, because it's such a different place. And But this is actually a situation I've thought about in many other states and countries, colonies, all this. There was this experience of blacks who had been freed or who actually started as free people. I mean, they didn't have to be freed. So in areas like New Orleans or other areas where there was a mixture of blacks who were enslaved or who were free, how did that work? How did you identify? Is it you always have to carry a piece of paper with you or a tattoo? I'm, I'm just, I think that given the levels of racism and the intensity of it in the South, and, you know, it was really after the war, all the lynchings and such blossomed. How does one tell a free black from an enslaved black? Well, so there was identification at the time. And also when slaves would be away from their places of enslavement, they would usually carry passes from their masters so that if you were stopped, you could show it to someone. However, of course, that doesn't stop you from being taken if you are a free Black person. I mean, I think we're all familiar now with the story of 12 Years a Slave, which actually details the fact that you had a free Black man who was kidnapped because often, particularly once the Fugitive Slave Act was introduced, 
you could take a black person and say, I'm recovering them for someone else, their master, which was completely legal under federal law and essentially sell them again. Yes, you were free, but once again, you didn't enjoy the full rights and certainly not the full protection of being a white citizen of the country. Allison, again, because you grew up Jewish and in at the time of the book, the, the percentage of Jews in the country was so minimal. This experience of being a second class citizen, of having your rights threatened, has that changed in the U.S. in the 150 years since the time of the Civil War? That's a great question. You know, and I've just finished watching Ken Burns's documentary, U.S. and the Holocaust. I don't know if you've had a chance to watch that. But he really explores anti-Semitism in the United States and and abroad, of course. And, you know, anti-Semitism is something that often feels invisible until it isn't, that you don't walk down the street and people think, oh, you dirty Jew. But there is this feeling of once it's discovered that you're Jewish, the stereotypes about money and controlling the media and all of these things that people actually, even to this day, feel are real. I guess to be specific to your question, I think Jews have always been on the outside and always very fearful that they're going to have to run. I still know to this day people whose family have, you know, survivors of the Holocaust and their their grandparents have two different passports. My friend in Sweden, her she just discovered her, you know, when her grandmother passed, she had a Portuguese passport, even though she was Swedish. This sense of you never know for when they're coming for us until they are. I think writing this novel with Shauna has really made me vulnerable to these feelings that I've suppressed for so long, you know, knowing that I was different growing up. You know, my parents always brought me up to be like, you have to be better and never get in trouble. Like, just keep your head high, do well in school. Don't draw attention to yourself. You know, this sense of never failing because someone's going to be rooting for your failure. I didn't realize until I was older that that's not really a normal way to grow up. (laughs) But this sense of, I guess, vulnerability in the community has always been something that I think was said, but wasn't said in my family. This, again, not drawing attention to yourself. But I think it's complicated also because when you grow up and you're Black, your skin is Black and you're walking down the street, your differentness is very apparent at first glance. But with being Jewish, it's not always apparent at first glance. And so there have been times in my life where I have been sitting next to someone at a dinner or, you know, I went to boarding school up east and I I remember my prom date didn't know I was Jewish and said something where he used a very derogatory slur against Jewish people. And I sat there and I remember thinking, do I let him know that I'm Jewish or do I not say anything? It's funny. I heard my father in my head saying, tell him you're Jewish. And my mother saying, don't make a big stink about it and don't say anything. And in the end, I did say something. And his response was like, well, you're not like the other Jewish people. And again, what kind of remark is that? You know, like, what does that mean? You know, so writing this book has made me really ponder these different grades of hatred, racism, nativism, watching Ken Burns's documentary about how the parallels of immigration during World War II and refugees coming into America paralleled when we were in a situation in the United States where Germany and other countries didn't want their Jews and we were we did not let them in. So what happens when people are afraid to take into a country people who they consider outsiders and who are different? And I think in every historical novel that I've written, and this is my first Civil War novel, I've written three World War II novels, another one that takes place in South America during the Dirty Wars and other periods of time, there are always parallels to what you have experienced in your own life 
And so this book has really made me think more deeply, even just about, I remember this one part of our research, I was reading Tia Miles um, wrote a nonfiction book called All That She Carried, where she tries to reconstruct about the history of a flower sack that an enslaved woman just before she was being torn apart from her daughter places three pecans in this flower sack, a, a clean d- cotton dress for her, a lock of her hair, just so her daughter will remember the love that she has for her and that she won't forget it. And years later, the granddaughter of this woman who, you know, for her mother made this flower sack for her embroiders what she remembers, the oral history of what was placed in that flower sack. As I was reading the book, I called up Shauna and I said, this reads to me like a Holocaust book, you know, about people being separated from their mother, never to see them again, wanting to make sure they know how much they love them, the brutality and the being beaten from your by your oppressors and so much death as well. And she, on the other end of the phone, said, of course it does. But I had not made that connection before as a white woman, even though I'm Jewish, of the parallels between slavery and the Holocaust. And in this new documentary, One of the things I just learned was that when America criticized the Reich for making these laws that forbade Jewish people to have rights and all their property was stripped away from them and they were putting them in ghettos, their one word response often was Mississippi. Oh, wow. Yeah. By the way, I would say, Allison, that my experience up here, I've got a few different good friends. My friend Eli, we've been friends for more than 30 years, and he told me the number of cases where he did. He was Gottfried environmental. He he would do soil testing and other things. So he had all these friends who were working class here, and the person would say, yeah, he Jewed me out of that. And then Eli would say, but that's a slur against my religion. And the person would say, no, no, it's not about you. And they would just discount it. But, oh, it's so horrid to watch, and people, they fight the enlightenment. Let's put it that way. I wanted to say something about names. My name helps me is the name that Sandra and I took when we got married. I grew up as a Judkins. So I've been very interested in where names come from. Unfortunately, you have a name, Rich Man, so, <laughs> and which is probably friends with someone named Goldberg. And that, that might be a, almost a religious stereotype. But names of those who have been enslaved I'm also curious about how those names came forward, if it was different in New Orleans and how this all came. Because when a child is born and the father is the person who was enslaved, the woman, what name goes with that child? Or do family names travel? Can either of you enlighten me about that? It's not something that I've looked at specifically from that angle, although it's a fascinating question about how often the familial name of the father would travel in that circumstance. I think it would probably be left up to the mother, although, you know, just because your mother gave you a name if you're enslaved doesn't mean that that's ultimately going to be what you are called. What we do see, and I think is so interesting, is how many biblical names are being used. You know, in my family, I have... Isaacs and Isaiahs and things like that, clearly coming from the Bible, even though people couldn't read. And I think it was just a function of if you hear things and it's a new language and they've been stripped of all of their tribal languages and forced to learn English, that the faith even could be a refuge. And that's why you see so many biblical names. After the Civil War and when people who were formerly enslaved started registering with the Freedmen's Bureau and taking on last names, which they traditionally didn't have before. What I also think is interesting is 
A, a lot of them took on names that we associate with our forefathers, probably not having full information. That's why you meet so many Black people who are named like Washington and things like that. Obviously, you meet Lincolns. But so many of them also took on their former master's last name as well, which at first you can think about that and you're like, why wouldn't you want to totally repudiate that experience? But at the same time, that was their family too, right? And trying to have a vestige of the past, particularly if you're going to try to re-meet your people, like if you've been scattered to the winds and sold off, I think outweighed the absolute disgust that they must have felt. And it makes her very interesting ancestral history now because you have families that have a black side and a white side and people might have moved and passed and some people are descendants of slave owners. And it is a way in which we are still very much all intertwined and never quite able to escape what happened a mere 160 years ago. So names are very interesting. Well, there's so many people to get involved with in this book, folks. The Thread Collectors is what we're talking about here. Authors are Shauna Edwards and Allison Richmond. The link to the website, thethreadcollectors.com, is on northernspiritradio.org. One last question for both of you. Central to this book is those people who sew, who stitch, who make maps, who in so many ways have cloth serving a purpose, a greater purpose. And it's also the purpose of friendship through music that happens, particularly between Jacob and William. And we shouldn't forget Teddy as well. The, the, <laughs> the, the friendship that's bond through them. So are either of you either thread workers or music makers? Oh, Shauna, you have to say what instrument you play. So I play the harp, much like Lily. I am not a quilter, although in my family there have been. I started a quilt, but my mother was forcing me to hand stitch and I gave up. So... Thank you for quilting together a beautiful book, The Thread Collectors, folks. Links on northernspiritradio.org. Again, thank you so much, Shauna, for joining me and taking this time. I know you had places to be elsewhere and that you cleared it to be here is such a gift to us. It's my pleasure. The gift was for me. And Allison, I look forward to hearing more about your other books. You've got so much a rich assortment out there. Always during war, it seems like, always during troubles. I Don't you ever want to write a book that happens in a pleasant time? Well, I think what I love to explore in my novels is how does light emerge in periods of darkness? And so obviously the war, that landscape is there's, you know, definite terrible troubles, both politically and economically during that time period. But when do the best of people emerge and where are those rays of light? And like the thread collectors, where is friendship found that sustains us? And love, love sustains us as well. So all those things that are meaningful to me, I think it's very hopeful to be able to still find them even during times of great darkness. So folks, remember to get a hold of the thread collectors and you'll find the difficult times where love is the thread that holds us together. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you, Mark. I've got the link to the thread collectors on northernspiritradio.org. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.
Our lives will feel the echo of our healing.